Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day to gather together to rejoice in our Lord's resurrection on this beautiful Sunday. Thank you for sending him first of all as the greatest form of grace this world has ever seen from a wellspring of love that is unique to you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this day to celebrate. Thank you for giving us each other, each other to celebrate together with. As is always the case, Father, may we be encouraged by each other's faith. And also may we encourage each other as long as it's called today. We thank you most of all, Father, for your son's work on the cross to make this day a reality, to give us this great hope. We do just ask for your blessings on the goings-on this morning, especially the message. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a special Resurrection Sunday special message. Uh, thanks for being here. It's great to see everyone. Um, the question that the Spirit wanted me to ask you this morning was a very simple one, but maybe one that the vast majority of so-called Christians today may not even ponder. Why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday? Why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday? And I wonder how many, quote, Christians really know why. I mean, really, truth be told, understand what God has done through us through resurrection. So why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday? Let's find out. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday? First Corinthians 15, verse 1. <clears throat> now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now there's a couple of ways to translate that, but this morning the emphasis is going to be on this idea of unless you believed in vain, and it has everything to do with resurrection in vain to Paul. If you are to read the epistles, all of his work in the New Testament, you'd know that Christ's resurrection was fundamental to the faith. He was saying that if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. If Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. So this morning is a, an appropriate celebration 
this theme, as we'll see, is carried throughout this entire chapter. Unless you believed in vain. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, which means the Old Testament prophesied it. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It was supposed to happen that way. It was ordained from eternity past to happen that way. So we might rightly say that the gospel of Christ has always existed, even in the Old Testament, which means that even the Old Testament saints looked forward to the Christ. Up here on the board, Jesus spoke to this. John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, an Old Testament saint, father of the Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Again, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again. And that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than... 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep in context. That just means some have died at that point in time. Verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So it's obvious that the Lord wanted man to know of his resurrection, wanted it to be validated. Paul wasn't one of the original twelve. This is why he says in verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul wasn't one of the original twelve, as we've been learning in our mainstream studies. Rather, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, up here on the board, Acts 9, 4 through 5. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, his name before Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9. Paul was humble, of course, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that He has been raised from the dead, how do, you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this same argument that is threaded, uh, this is the same argument that is threaded throughout this chapter. It's the one I alluded to earlier in verse 2 when Paul said, unless you believed in vain, how is it that some of you are buying this lie? Because if you buy this lie and you continue with that lie, logically, your faith is worthless. So the same thread continues throughout this chapter. In a very real sense, Paul was responding to an infection in the church at Corinth. For there were some suggesting that there's no such thing as resurrection. So Paul uses his unique brand of logical reasoning to dispel any doubts about what he believed was the very linchpin of the gospel message, namely the resurrection. Up here on the board elsewhere he wrote, Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof, was proof that God had accepted His sacrifice. That God would be just in justifying the ungodly. That's our proof. Romans 4.25, He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised, resurrected, because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof that God had accepted His sacrifice, that God would be just in justifying the ungodly. You see, this is why Paul clung so deeply to the resurrection, to Him. And likewise for us, it is the very linchpin of our faith. Without it, our faith is in vain. The proof, even, that God has given us regarding the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross, that God was satisfied. So in order to dispel every angle, Paul continues with his logic. And a side note again, the context here is that some were upsetting the gospel in this church by saying there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. That source it could have been sourced from a multitude of places. Uh, the first one, to my mind, are the Sadducees, right? They, didn't, they took offense to um, the resurrection. They, there could have been Jews of that order that infected the church. Um, there could have been a host of reasons. But nonetheless, this is what Paul was up against. So the context was that there was an infection in the church. And it was upsetting the true gospel of Christ. The same one, as we just read, of Old Testament Scripture. Verse 13, <clears throat> so he continues, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, so Paul's basically saying, let's investigate this lie. Let's carry this lie out, if you would, uh, let's let it run out, almost like a, a fishing line. Let's, let's, let's let it run out for a little bit and see where this leads us. 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is how? In vain. It's vain. Your faith also is vain. This would make Jesus, of course, and God liars. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, if this is true, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, supposedly, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. This is a very powerful statement. Essentially no different than the one that Jesus used with the Jews who refused to believe him up here on the board. In John 8, 24, this, doesn't this sound very familiar? John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, is that if there's no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, then those of us clinging to Jesus are doing so in vain. Here on the board, verse 17, if this errant logic were true, we're in no better condition positionally than unbelieving Jews that crucified Jesus. Because they too will what? Die in their sins, or they died in their sins. If our faith is worthless, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then we are in the same condition, my friends. And that's what Paul is saying. Again, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That's no different than the unbelieving Jews at the time of Christ. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Because you know what, as we'll see later on in this chapter, they're perishable. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Up here on the board, in this life only, Paul's logic, assuming there is no resurrection, we'd have nothing to look forward to. I mean, what's after death then? Is this as good as it gets? If so, we might as well party now. And I didn't say that. You're going to see that in Scripture. This is where this logic takes you. This is what I've been trying to teach you for years now, since the inception of this church even. False doctrines always implode upon themselves. But you have to have the tenacity, the humility, the desire even to carry them through. To see if what you think you believe is actually true. 
by Scripture's standard. And that's all Paul's argument here. If this is it, we might as well just hang up our hats now because we're all going to die in our sins, no different than the, the ones who hung, up, hung Jesus on a cross. Even Jesus would still be in the grave if this was true. Not seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Finally, Paul turns the corner after dispelling incredibly sinister arguments. Look at verse 20. But, but, now Christ has been raised from the dead. But it's true, he has been raised from the dead. To many witnesses even. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's a reference to Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Hallelujah. Hold your thumb there. Go to Romans 6.3. Romans 6.3, again, verse 22 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians was, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Romans 6, 3. Or, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15.22 now, where we essentially see the same statement in short order in verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he shall put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? In other words, to continue here with Paul's overall defense against this idea, this infection, that there's no such thing as resurrection. He's saying that people would be baptized this way. If there is no such thing as a resurrection, people would be baptized, which really means to be identified or unified with. People would be baptized with others who have died with no hope. In other words, you're going to go the same way. You're going to be baptized into that mess, that hopeless situation. He then turns the practical argument towards his own ministry. Look at verse 30. <clears throat> Why are we also in danger every hour? And that's a re reference to Paul's life was, that Paul's life was constantly being threatened. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives... I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, and this is that point I made earlier, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Essentially, if this is as good as it gets, why don't we just party now? Because we don't have a hope. Our faith is worthless if there's no such thing as resurrection. The entire gospel is null and void. God and Jesus are liars. There's no proof. There's nothing. There's no linchpin. The whole thing, all bets are off. We are going to die in our sins. We might as well take advantage of today like the people say out there. We don't have a hope, in other words. That's what he's saying. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then Paul turns back towards his audience, verse 33. Do not be deceived. This is what was going on. I've been teaching this from the pulpit in a variety of ways over the past few years. Bad company corrupts good morals. How is this infection happening then? You've been cut by someone bad. You've allowed certain thoughts to enter into your blessed soul, and now you're infected. Why? Because you have been hanging around with bad company. And some of you can think the same way. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, don't listen to those trying to fracture the church, he said, with their lies about no resurrection from the dead. If you give them that, if you allow something so heinous to seep into your own thoughts, if you give them that, you've effectively surrendered your faith. Therefore, verse 34, Become sober-minded 
as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, even in the church. Even in the church. Some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, quote, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul then gives four examples in verses 36 to 49 to address this question, beginning with nature even. Look at 36. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differ, differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And those are his arguments, all four. Verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This is a reference, of course, to the rapture of the church. As Paul refers to elsewhere in Scripture up here on the board, for example... 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's resurrection. We call it the first resurrection, theology. If Christ's not resurrected, what, cho what chance do we have? If there's no such thing as resurrection at all, what's this all about then? We might as well throw our Bibles out. 
because the entire gospel has become null and void. This is his ongoing argument that our faith even would be in vain. Verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. I love this because Paul concludes with a flurry of very encouraging reminders to those being disturbed in the church that not only is the resurrection real, not only is it the linchpin of our faith, not only is it God's personal stamp of approval, the proof even of His satisfaction with His Son's work on the cross, but it grants us an impenetrable hope. A hope that cannot be taken away, ever. A living hope. As the Apostle Peter stated, hold your thumb, go to 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3. This is why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Know it. Love it. Embrace it. Share it. Remind people of it. 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a what? a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. But if there's no resurrection, your faith is in vain. So you might as well throw this out too. Why are you going through all that trouble to stand up for Christ? Why can you relate to Paul who said, I die daily? What's it all for if this is all for naught? Back to where Paul concludes this magnificent chapter regarding the strength of our living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our first fruit, the one who conquered the grave, that is death itself. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 55. First Corinthians fifteen fifty five. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul wraps up this treatise on the resurrection, putting to rest anything that might have been upsetting the church at Corinth and so we too, thousands of years later, say thank you to the Holy Spirit, to the one who has inspired Holy Scripture, so that many years later, it still speaks to us as if written to us personally, which is actually true after all. Only, only the God of the universe the same one that became a man and conquered death, the same one that satisfied his own judgment on fallen man, the same one that justified the ungodly. Only that God could have inspired this holy scripture that has answered the question we set out to answer this morning, which was, why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. May the Spirit continue to teach you why and remind you forevermore. Amen? All right, let's show the video, guys.
I live because I am His, because He is alive. Amen? All right, let's pass out the elements, get a little music, guys. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this tremendous day to celebrate this unique time, this unique place even, a celebration of 
our Lord's resurrection is the first fruit, the very cause of our hope, proof given by you even of a living hope. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for your tenderness. Thank you for your mercies. We just ask that as we depart here this morning, the Spirit's ministry in our lives this morning stays with us, stays fresh, keeps us living in that hope throughout today and forevermore so that others might witness these things in us, maybe, just maybe, that would be light shining in darkness. Maybe, just maybe, another soul will be saved. Maybe next year they'll be with us, celebrating this way. We ask for traveling mercies as we depart this morning. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.